Live from New York City, it's The Gary Knoll Show. And now, your host, Gary Knoll. Hi, I'm Gary Knoll. This is an empowering hour coming at you. We're going to talk about what kind of spices you could use to, well, to help your blood pressure when you're cooking a meal. Also today, we have about 10 really important health and nutrition pieces of advice, always from, always from mainstream institutions and published in the peer-reviewed literature. And we put all of the notes uh, on prn.fm. Scroll down, you can watch this. I'm video streaming over Zoom. And something I haven't been able to do for a long time, but now I am able to do it. And shortly I'll be able to do it outside. So I can take you outside and show you some of the animals, the animal sanctuary, and and uh, and how things are grown and how I can graft cherries to come up with a completely different type of cherry. I call it an ambrosia cherry. So for those of you who like gardening indoors, um, in your attic, in your kitchen, in your garage, or growing in outdoor hydroponics, I'll be able to show you that as well. So we have a lot to share now that you can see things. Um, also, when the uh, running reunion group comes in January, more full, by the way, um, I'm filming the entire two weeks. These are athletes who once did marathons, but have kind of let themselves get out of shape, and now they're repurposing their life at an older age, but with a whole new vitality. And how do you get yourself into shape when you've been out of shape for so long? I'll film it and I'll stream it, hopefully on a daily basis, and you'll hear their stories. I think it'll be interesting. But today, I want to deal with two issues, and the one issue is the woke phenomena. Now, some people believe, like a close friend of mine, that, well, the woke phenomena will pass. It's just a fad. I don't believe it is. I believe that there is a small group of individuals who believe that they can force change on an entire society and that you better pay attention to what they're doing, because if not, they can make their thoughts into laws, which then you're going to be held accountable for honoring. And a lot of people thought that this would come and go like a lot of other things that have come and gone. No, this is here to stay. So I believe it's important for those of us who are actually awakening to look at what this woke cult is about and challenge it. And I'm going to play two videos today. The first will be a short video on what it was like growing up in the 1950s, as many people in this audience, myself included, had experienced as children. But then, what were the lessons learned? Why did some of us, not everyone, rebel and start to join protests and then start to, to push back against some of the stereotypical standards of living and role-playing that was uh, inherent in the society. Then we evolved from that, as the boomers, into a Me Too generation, where everything was about our success, our triumphs, our possessions, what we could achieve in a hierarchical order, in a very competitive society. That's a different video, and it's by a liberal person looking at some of the mistakes the liberal community has made when it didn't pay attention is what you're saying that we should all do, are you doing it also? Well, the answer is no. And they're going to, they, not me, they're going to show you this. 
and then time allowing at the end of the program, you have a chance to call in. Because it's not about condemning people. It's about realizing the mistakes we make and how many of those mistakes can we learn from and then turn around and change and make it a better world for everyone without having to threaten people, arrest people, beat people, shoot people, condemn people, erase people. And that's what we're doing now. It is just horrible, the divide-and-conquer strategies that the corporate, and these are corporate Democrats, as historically were the corporate Republicans engaged in this type of nonsense. So we need to say no. If something is not reasonable, if it's not science-based, I mean real science, not corporate science, then we should push back. And because of all of our crisis, people are doing that now. So those are some of the things we're going to deal with today. But we start with the latest, and this is a controlled feeding study. What they found was that when people took in about 6.5 grams, that's about one and a quarter teaspoons of herbs and spices a day, it was linked with lowering their blood pressure after just four weeks. Now that's a good thing because these are the seasonings that we normally have available. They're inexpensive, they're natural, like thyme and oregano, dill and rosemary, and of course cayenne and red chili peppers. These actually can bring down our blood pressure and still make dishes nice, like turmeric. That's very common. So that's one of the reasons why in cultures where turmeric is commonly used in dishes, that they will have lower blood pressure because of the healing capacity of these herbs. These are, these are actual functional medicinal herbs, and we have them available. We're just not using them. I remember once I was um, walking down um, Madison Avenue, and around 27th Street, I saw all these stores on two blocks that were Indian stores. I went in. I'd never been in. And the smells were just wonderful. And it was just row after row after row of lentils and legumes and pulses and herbs, many of which I had no idea. I didn't know there were over a hundred different types of curry. But then again, when we filmed in India, northern India, uh, for the important film that we did with Vandana Shiva on, uh, on genetically modified foods, and it was a powerful film. By the way, there was one PBS station, uh, Rocky Mountain PBS, and the program director, Sherry Bernson, insisted that it play. And they said, no, 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 you know, it goes after Monsanto and goes after the, many of their people that would support them financially, the Koch brothers included. And uh, so now it was called Seas of Death. So they played it when all other regular programming was off the air at 11 o'clock at night. Played it over 80 times, and it still raised money every single day, night that it was played. Other stations, no. One call from one of the big corporations involved in genetic engineering, and boom, it would be uh, pulled. But anyhow, in northern India, um, near the Himalayas, they have over a thousand different types of mango. They have hundreds of variety of rice. Who knew? But these are not genetically engineered. These are heirloom seeds. 
But unfortunately, because the Green Revolution, they would bring in just one type of rice and one type of maize, one type of corn that was genetically engineered, that people made profits from and can control it, in effect a monopoly on how hundreds of millions of people were fed each day. And it was a disaster. And that was sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation. It did not work. Just let me give you an example of one of the things you won't find in the United States, but you certainly found it in other countries, including India. People were poor, absolutely, uh, but they were not hungry. And one of the reasons they weren't hungry is because of these open-air markets. And everybody grew something or made something or had some skill that they bartered. So it was a fair exchange. So let's just say that you went to a farmer's market, and these are huge farmer's markets. I mean, huge, the size of two or three football fields. And one person specialized in cashews, which are common from India, and they're very big cashews. Another in yellow lentils, another in sweet potatoes. Well, you would walk around and you would give someone something you were growing and they would give you something they grew, well, at the end of the day, when you went home, you had a wide variety of foods that didn't cost you anything. And that's how it was done for a long, long time, until in came the genetic engineering people going to make it better for them. Well, all that land that they had used in little farms for themselves, that was all el eliminated in big commercial farms that required tractors and pesticides and herbicides and fungicides and genetically engineered uh, crops, including cotton. And right now, hundreds of thousands of Indian farmers have killed themselves, committed suicide, because their debts were so high, they couldn't afford to buy new seed, and all the original indigenous uh, growing seeds were gone. So you, you have to look at a picture in its entirety. You have to look behind the public comments in the agenda, see the truth. But in any case, we should be growing our own herbs at home. And you can, you can have your own herb garden. You can even do it inside, or you can do it outside just by making a uh, insulated uh, little greenhouse. Very easy to do. In fact, when I was down in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and I was doing a film on Poverty Inc., there was, I was told to look for the yellow school bus because that's the guy who's doing something really unique in the Ninth Ward, which has uh, a low uh, land level, so you're below sea level. And that's where you could, as you're driving down the street, you'd see the water line at about the eight to nine foot mark on every single house. But here was, uh, I finally found that yellow bus, and there was a house, and it had been damaged so much there was no floor, they took the floor out. So everything was on dirt. But I walked in, I was invited in, and here were all these beds, single beds, all made like if you were in an army barracks, all neat. And there was neatly uh, pressed clothes on each little, uh, uh, little chest of drawers. Uh, it was really neat. But then when you would look, you would see all these millions of dust particles floating in the air, because every time you stepped, the dust would spread. In any case, out the back door, the whole area was a community garden. And they were growing everything. And this was in February when I was there. And uh, it wasn't freezing, but it was cold.
And here they had these greenhouses, passive heating, meaning you walk into the greenhouse, they made themselves, and it was warm as toast, and they had everything growing. And then they had a house that had been torn down right next to them, and that's where they would go around to all of the uh, kitchens, and the, uh, all of the different uh, restaurants, and they would get all their biodegradable materials, all the stuff that got, was not eaten. And they put it there, and they made these huge compost pile. And when I talk about huge, it was the whole, whole like 160 by 90, and it was about 12 foot high. But when it composted in that humid, warm, New Orleans uh, weather, they would then bag it as organic fertilizer. And they had 1,000 bags of it, and they sold it. Uh, and then the morning I was there, there was a long line of people from the neighborhood all outside, so I took my camera and I interviewed them. And they said, well, we love coming here because it's all organic, it's healthy, clean food, and there's lots of varieties, things we can't find in the supermarkets. So we come here every Saturday morning, and then I spoke with the people, and it was interesting, I spoke with two fellows, and you'll see them on camera if you want to go back and watch Poverty, Inc. And I said, what are you doing this for? Here's what the guy said. He said, mind you, we're the poorest of the poor. We're the neighborhood down here in the Lower Ninth Ward that the city doesn't care for. We don't get any help here. He said, did you see that all the trees are still broken and houses abandoned and, and garbage not picked up? He said, that's two years after Katrina and they don't give us any help. So we got a choice. We can sell drugs and risk getting caught and going to prison, then being labeled a criminal, or we can come here and learn about gardening. And I chose with my friends to come here. And now we're making money legally and we're doing good things for the community. In fact, other people want to open up community gardens in their backyard and they're coming here and we're teaching them. Jump ahead 10 years, I go back. Now there's all these community gardens. That story has not been told. You don't see this, and you should, because it's important. Anyhow, one of the things that everybody liked was herbs, seasonings, because down in New Orleans, oh, in the French Quarter, phenomenal food. I mean, really good food. Uh, what they call very mild seasoning. No, it's, for anyone not used to that kind of hot, it's hot. But they love it. So the message of this study from uh, Texas Tech University is put the herbs in to your dishes as you make them. Like throw some Cajun into brown rice after it's cooked and when it's steeping. And with some, uh, I'd like to put some, a combination of uh, macadamia oil and uh, coconut oil and olive oil. I mix them all together. I put it in there with herbs and Cajun seasonings with some cayenne and a little bit of cumin. Makes the rice dish just tastes phenomenal. It's not boring, but it's also every one of those lower the blood pressure. Just something to think about. Again, just one and a quarter teaspoons per day. So this was a study showed use these and your blood pressure goes down. Now I'm working with a lot of people with diabetes. And next week I'm going to make a whole presentation on diabetes, a classroom on the air. 
probably take a half hour. But just a little sneak preview of one of the things I recommend you have if you have diabetes is bitter melon, B-I-T-T-E-R, melon, M-E-L-O-N. Now, I began using bitter melon juices. looks like a prickly cucumber with all these little nods on it, and it's bitter. And we used to make fresh juices all day long. We had one group start at 8 in the morning, another at 2 in the afternoon, another at 6 at night. So all they did was make juices for all the patients. But in particular, the AIDS patients, they had to take bitter melon. Why? Because it's strongly antiviral and antibacterial. And you could bring down a viral load just by using just bitter melon. But it also is really good for people who have diabetes. It helps stabilize blood sugar. Now, a University of Colorado Cancer Center showed that bitter melon can lower blood sugar levels and even prevent cancer. Bitter melon is uh, it's known as a bitter gourd and a balsam pear in other parts of the world. It's one of those foods that, that meet more than your sense of sight and taste. That's why this study demonstrated that the vegetables' ability to fight pancreatic cancer, mind you, pancreatic cancer is one of the hardest cancers to treat. And it found that treating pancreatic cancer tumors in mice with five milligrams of freeze-dried bitter melon juice every day reduces the tumor's uh, size and makes them 64% smaller than those that are untreated in this study in mice. And what's more, bitter melon proved more effective than a common chemotherapy drug used in a similar study, which reduced the tumor size by only 52%, and you have all the side effects of chemotherapy, not with bitter melon. The researchers noted the dosage used in the study caused no adverse effects on the mice, and we use bitter melon Thousands upon thousands of people used it. Never had a single problem. From the University of California at Riverside, flame retardants linked to autistic-like behavior. They're called polybromylated diphenyl ethers, or PBDEs. They're a class of fire-retardant chemicals that are ubiquitous. They're everywhere, in your furniture, in your bedding, in in almost everything in your house. You'll find them in your upholstery, in your carpets, in your curtains, in your electronics, even in infant products. Flame retardants migrate out of the products into dust that humans can ingest in the air. They're a global environmental pollutant, and uh, they've been detected in water, soil, air, food products, animals, and human tissue. They're found, too, in breast milk, and that's why if you're going to plan a pregnancy, then make sure that you take the time to take at least one year before pregnancy and detoxify the body, get rid of the heavy metals, get rid of these. Now, you can get these out of the body. They're proper chelating, chelating, chele from the Greek, claw-like. Here's a toxin. The chelation element comes, grabs it like ethylene dimetic tetracytic acid, engulfs it, and takes it out through the urine. So detoxify and then get rid of anything in your house that you can 
that might be a pollutant that can go through your body, through your breast milk, or through the, uh, through the, into the fetus, through the umbilical cord. It's just important. Also, two omega-3s three, uh, in fish oil can boost your brain function in people with heart disease. This is from Harvard Medical School. Two omega-3 fatty acids found in fish oil can help improve brain function, especially if you're over the age of 40. It's DHA and EPA. And given in a combined supplement, then improves cognitive function. So for my friend out there who's 95 and you're working on your uh, cognition, memory decline, make sure that you're getting DHA and EPA. You can get them together in a supplement and you take about 1,500 milligrams in the morning, another 1,500 milligrams in the late afternoon. And that can address coronary artery disease and it can address dementia. By the way, um, CAD is a common type of heart disease that occurs when plaque buildup in the arteries and hinders poor blood flow. And studies have shown people with CAD um, have a 45% increased risk of cognitive decline. Now, so if I have someone that has CAD, I make sure I put them on tocotrienols and tocopherols, which are a subfraction. The tocotrienols are a subfraction of tocopherol, alpha, beta, gamma, delta. Generally about 200 units a day. And of the tocopherols, about 800 units, 400 in the morning, 400 in the afternoon. And it really makes a difference. Also, interesting study out of the University of Waterloo, which is in Canada, Despite understanding the concept of mindfulness, people are applying it incorrectly. What do I mean? Well, mindful awareness about both accepting and engaging with life's challenges, and that that's what populated, uh, um, let's say, in the average person's mind. Mindfulness is not always fully understood. And a lot of people think, okay, my mindfulness tells me if there's a problem, just don't get excited by it, but don't engage it. No, no, that's not what it's about. Remember, it originated from the Buddhist philosophy, and much of the mindfulness movement's popularity grew from clinical research affirming its potential for reducing stress-related health issues. Now, for all the things I have to deal with, all the attacks and everything else I'm engaged in, and all the efforts to bring the truth to the public, I have all these challenges. Mindfulness means I'm not going to personalize them, right? And instead, I'm still going to deal with the issue, but I'm going to deal with it from a calmer, more relaxed, and non-fearful perspective. And that way, I can get things accomplished, but without getting upset in the process. So real mindfulness allows you a sense of calm, where you're not just overreacting emotionally to everything in your life. Because once you start overreacting, then that subconscious epigenetic self kicks in and then everything becomes your victim, your victim, they're the enemy, they're the enemy, you're the victim, and they're the enemy. And you never get out of that cycle. So just be calm. That's mindfulness. Breathe deep, relax, 
we're all going to face problems and crisis and closure and loss. It's how we choose to approach it that's important. Also, a new study out of a medical center in Utah showed that bacterial pneumonia is far more dangerous to the heart than viral pneumonia. Now, both are bad, and if you live a preventative life, you can fairly well prevent that from happening, and then the moment you do find that you have a problem using the best of orthodox and complementary approaches, you can frequently survive, and that's good. Heart complications in patients diagnosed with bacterial pneumonia are more serious than in patients diagnosed with viral pneumonia, according to new research of 5,000 patients. Researchers found that patients uh, diagnosed with bacterial pneumonia had a 60% greater risk of heart attack and stroke or death than patients who have been diagnosed with viral pneumonia. Now, are you using things like Podiarco, the herb? It's great for antibacterial. And B. propolis, again, good for bacteria. Astragalus, and echinacea. So vitamin C, we should be using these because it can help us. And also, from Florida State University, another reason we should be concerned about our, our over-polluted environment is because of microplastics. They can alter cellular function. Pollution from minuscule pieces of plastic or microplastics have been a growing concern for scientists and public health advocates and environmentalists as these non-biodegradable items have increasingly made their way into waterways and even into the air we breathe. Now, a team of researchers found that exposure to microplastics for only a few days caused human lung cells to slow down their metabolism and growth, change shapes, and decluster so that gaps exist in what is typically a solid sheet of cells. So the findings raise questions about the long-term effects of microplastics on human health. And where are you likely to get exposed? In cities. Yeah, because the cities do nothing to lessen or eliminate these microplastic pollutants in the air. That's important. I'm Gary Knoll. That's the latest on health and healing. And we try to present information that is colorblind. It doesn't matter what your age, your religious views, your cultural differences. We believe everyone deserves to be respected, cared for, and helped without any form of discrimination. And yet we have people today priding themselves on identity politics. And if you're not exactly in alignment with them, you're attacked. This is clearly a coordinated effort, but who gains and who loses? And I just read a review by Andre Key from Religious Religion Dispatches about a book from uh, Professor John McWhorter, who's a Columbia professor of, of linguistics and American studies. He's African American. And he wrote a book about woke racism, how a new religion has betrayed black America. Now, he's going to be attacked, of course, by people from within the woke community. And like any of the people who disagree with him, 
he'll be called a racist, even though he teaches against racism, lives against racism. But he also realizes we are not an inherently uh, and systemically racist society. Yes, we've had racists. Yes, we do have racists. But you would believe that everyone is racist. D'Angelo, who's written what I personally believe is the most dangerous single book, though I would not recommend it be banned. I don't believe in censorship. I don't believe in book burnings. <clears throat> I believe that, just like Mein Kampf, published by Hitler, but actually written by Rudolf Hess, because Hitler was a functional illiterate, uh, and Hess was not, in 1925. And it was originally was rejected. People didn't like it. But over time, once they got power, they started insinuating it within all the school system and insisting that the good soldier read it and believe it. And it was about the superiority of the Aryan race and the inferiority of the Jewish race. And that led to the mindset that allowed the 50 million regular Germans to believe that it was acceptable for an entire group of people, an entire ethnicity and, um, and a cultural group to be destroyed by any means. And that brings us to the notion of the good German. How good are, are you as a person if you chose not to challenge the prevailing views and just went along with it? As many people at Nuremberg would later say, well, I was just following orders. Well, how many of the people in Iraq were just following orders and yet they killed innocent Iraqis or in Afghanistan? In fact, just today, the British uh, Ministry of Defense is inquiring about 11 raids that were done by one particular group of British uh, elite soldiers where they just killed people. They just, everyone that they rounded up, they just shot and uh, and they got away with it. Now they're not getting away with it. They're being challenged. And yet at every step in this, the British high command, the British political establishment protected them, just like we have done, just like we did to protect Obama against his multiple incursions into foreign affairs. Now I give you this as background only because every group that's ever been involved in the destruction of life, uh, and whether environmental life or animal life or human life, always has a rationalization that they believe is plausible. And if they're in power, they can actually make laws. Interesting because the Germans never broke their own laws. It's just that the laws were perverse and should never have been allowed. So where was their judiciary? Well, fearful that if you went against Hitler and his first his brown shirts and Rome who headed him or his uh, black uh, shirts and then the Gestapo, you would also uh, end up being uh, killed. So there was strong coercion. But now, today, do you see anyone criticizing our CIA or our Justice Department, our State Department, any of the agencies that have engaged in crimes against humanity? No, no one, and you won't. And those people who can say anything, no matter how racist it is, because they're saying it in the name of anti-racism or the fascist talking about uh, how not to be a fascist and attacking people who they believe are fascist, but they're actually fascists. So we have anti-racists who are racist and we have anti-fascists who are fascist. Well, finally, now books are being written 
and people are coming forward who've been quiet, more or less, up to this point, to push back. And in any healthy society, you should have room for dialogue and exchange of ideas. And so I suggest that people take a look at the book Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. And especially since the professor takes aim at wokeness and its adjacent cancel culture to bemoan what he perceives as social justice activism run amok. So just want to recommend that to you because uh, he makes some very strong uh, and very insightful comments that most people are not aware of. But how do we get here? How do we get to where one group of individuals, generally a small group, believes that they're entitled to judge everyone else without being judged? They believe in their freedom of speech but want to censor everyone else. They believe they can say what they want on Twitter or Facebook, but you can't, no matter what your background. So, just something to, to talk about and to, to have a dialogue on. Now let's go to a short clip about life in America in 1950s and how it, the good and the bad of it, because they're both, you know, the positive and negative, how it formed a dialectic that would later be, merge into what we're seeing today. Now to the clip. The parents of the 1950s were, I think, the most unusual generation of the 20th century. These are the people who had grown up in the Depression. They had experienced real tough times when they were children and when they were teenagers. And then World War II hit, as many of them were just reaching adulthood, and they had the trauma of the war. And then, after all that, they reached the 1950s at a time when the U.S. was tremendously prosperous, when the economy was booming as we've never seen it before. And I think they reacted to that prosperity, and they think, I think they reacted strongly to all of the trauma of the Depression and the war by turning inward a bit, by marrying young, by emphasizing home and family. It was a perfect um, setting in which the youth culture, in a certain sense, could, could blossom. Uh, life in the suburbs was organi organized around the kids again. Uh, they were the center of attention, a ra endless round of Little League games and PTA meetings, etc. So it was in the suburbs, in a, a certain sense, that this message about the importance and the uniqueness and the generational potency associated with these kids, I think, was delivered with real force. In the average American family today, children are the object of more concentrated thought and concern than the young of any previous generation. For out of an increasing understanding of child psychology has come an awareness that children are real people with individual personalities which must be respected and encouraged. This was a distinctly new way to be raised in the world. And it allowed um, for a whole generation that I suppose we would now call spoiled, spoiled kids, which from another point of view simply meant kids who had very high expectations in life with respect to freedom, and happiness. They thought life was about being free and about being happy. And they carried those expectations forward into high school and into college uh, and brought with them a kind of um, um, uh, a level of expectation that was simply unprecedented in, I, I would say, in world history. We found out in the 50s that if you got up in the morning and went to work and did a good day's work, uh, that things got better. You got promoted or you got more money. Uh, you were able to buy furniture. You could have more children. The children could have better clothes. And life just improved. 
we knew it was because you went to work. But I'm not sure our children realized that. They saw simply that the clothes got better, the house got bigger, the, the neighborhood got nicer. And I have a strong suspicion that what happened in the late 60s was that the kids who rebelled took it for granted that life would improve automatically. Now here's a major seat of the 60s. Because of their profoundly different life experiences, kids had trouble understanding why their fathers worked so hard. The way many of them saw it, their fathers were engaging in the single-minded pursuit of material comforts. My dad was always above board in all his business dealings. But I would say money and getting ahead and, 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 and making a lot of bucks was his goal. And I think what it was was dad meant well. Dad wanted to love us, but dad was so busy at work. He would work till two, three in the morning doing artwork, artwork for the business. He'd get up early and be gone. I hardly ever saw him. Everything young boys saw at home and on TV told them that if they did as they were supposed to, they would be, quote, lucky enough to follow in their father's footsteps. The Cub Scout program helps the boys' adjustment both to the family and to the group. This son of yours has been fighting again. Look at this shirt. Can I tell you about it, Pop? Look, he's proud of it. Please, Pop. Not now, Jerry. I'm tired. I had a Mike bad Mike Kelly day. said you didn't have the guts to stand up for yourself, so I took a poke at him. That was all right, Poor wasn't it? Mike. What TV Poor showed boy. you was a world in which men were essentially impotent. He didn't have any right to say that about you, did he, Pop? Go to your room and get a decent shirt. This minute. Did he, Pop? There were no chance for risk. There was no place for excitement. There was no place for, no challenges being offered whatsoever. And the other kind of show you could watch were the Westerns, which showed uh, what a real man could do, measuring himself against other men, uh, especially with a gun. And I think that anybody who was a, a red-blooded American boy in the, uh, in the 1950s knew that they wanted to be more like Matt Dillon or more like uh, the paid gunfighter and have gun will travel than they wanted to be uh, Beaver Cleaver's father. Isn't it wonderful how this washer does all these heavy things? And what did girls feel was in store for them? A life just like their mother's. Judy, it isn't as bad as all that, dear. Sorry, Mother. I, I was just thinking. About what? Oh, you know, thinking how awful wash day used to be for you before you had the electric water heater and the washer. So now I add the pectin. Educational films like this one reflect society's belief that women could find fulfillment only as housewives and mothers. Now I let it come to a full rolling boil again. It won't take long. You like to cook, don't you, Pet? Oh, it's not just liking to cook. It's, it's more. It's, well, it's accomplishing something. It's me cooking. Me, Susan Douglas. And not just cooking, but, well, creating something special. Oh, I wish Miss Holland could talk to you. She could say it so much better than I can. Who's Miss Holland? She's my home economics teacher. Not enough of anyone means soup instead of jelly. Even girls who were sent to college often majored in what were called the domestic sciences. Interesting, I'm sure many of you will identify with things in there, and I believe they made too many overbroad 
generalizations because there were women who were not uh, acting like Betty Crocker or Ozzie Harriet or you know, Leave it to Beaver. There were a lot of people where the women were respected in their communities and, and had an opportunity to go out like Margaret Mead and many others and make the life they wanted. That is for a larger discussion because there was also strong underlying messages of where a woman's place was or where an uneducated person's place was in society. But now let's go to something that we're not looking at, and now's the time to look at it. So this is just a hypocrisy. We're going to bring freedom and peace and democracy to your country. Yes, says the New York Times. And we brought death and destruction and corruption. Iraq, Afghanistan. Here's a clip. I think you'll find it of interest. There is a question I've had for a very long time, and it has to do with this map. This is a map of the 18 states in the US where Democrats control the legislative and executive branches or else have some veto-proof majority in the legislature. Democrats in DC often blame the GOP for foiling their progressive vision. When middle-class families see their taxes go up, they'll know Republicans are to blame. But if you zoom into these 18 states, there's effectively no Republicans standing in the way. So my question is, what do Democrats actually do when they have all the power? To answer this question, I teamed up with the Times editorial board writer, Binya Applebaum. Okay, you got my attention. He's been thinking about and writing books about and reporting on this topic for decades. I think, you know, Americans tend to view politics as a competition of us versus them. And, and they tend to think that if they would just get out of the way, then we can do the things that we want to do. There is no them standing in the way. There's just the we of Democrats and their supporters, and they get to decide what policy should look like in those states. And that is an opportunity for them to implement their vision. For this story, I also delved into this giant document. It is the 2020 Democratic Party platform. If you want to really understand what Democrats say they want, what their vision is for America, it's found inside of this document. This document serves as a guide. As we zoom into these states to answer this question, what do Democrats really do when they have all the power? Nearly 554,000 homeless people from the 25 wealthiest Americans shows they're paying little in income taxes compared to their fortunes, sometimes nothing at all. We cannot, in good faith, blame the Republican Party when House Democrats have a majority. There's still very intense segregation happening in all kinds of forms all over this country. Okay, so let's start with California. To me, California is like the quintessential liberal state. From the state legislature to the whole executive branch to most of the big cities, Dems hold majority control. So what do they do with all this power? Looking at California, you have to look at housing. Okay, now wait, listen. When I hear the words housing policy, I tend to sort of doze off, but Binya insists that housing policy and what is happening in California is definitely worth looking at. You cannot say that you are against inequality in America unless you are willing to have affordable housing built in your neighborhood. And Democrats completely agree here in this document. The word housing is mentioned over a hundred times. The neighborhood where you're born has a huge influence on the rest of your life. Children who are born in neighborhoods with degraded environmental conditions, with a lack of 
access to high quality public services, poor schools, poor public transit, are at a permanent disadvantage. And they even say verbatim, housing in America should be stable, accessible, safe, healthy, energy efficient, and above all, affordable. Housing is a human right. Housing is a human right. The rent is going through the roof. Housing is a human right. How does California do when it comes to housing? You know where those signs are when you drive into a state that says, welcome to California? They might as well replace them with signs that say, keep out. Because in California, the cost of housing is so high that for many people, it's simply unaffordable. The, the state has simply, for the most part, stopped building housing. I mean, there are cranes, there's housing going up, but it has slowed down over time really, really sharply, and it is nowhere near sufficient to keep pace with California's population. And so what you have is, is not enough housing and too many people trying to get it, and the inevitable result is that prices have gone up, up, and away. The median price of a home in San Diego County is now a staggering $830,000. All around California, there are cities full of people who say that they are progressive, they're liberals. They believe in a more equal America, a more diverse America. They show up to the marches, they put in the lawn signs about everyone being equal, but at the same time, they're actively fighting to keep their neighborhoods looking like this. Okay, wait, but that doesn't look so bad. It's just a bunch of houses in a neighborhood, right? No, it turns out that this is actually the result of specific policies, intentional policies that keeps these neighborhoods spread out and full of single family homes, as opposed to higher density buildings like duplexes or apartment complexes. This is a real serious fight, and you can get a glimpse into it by looking at a zoning map. Yes, we're looking at a municipal zoning map of Palo Alto, California. Don't leave yet, this is really where it sinks in, so just stick around. So everything on this map that is yellow is zoned for single family homes, like this and this. One family can live here. But here in Palo Alto, there are a lot of new jobs. This is a desirable place to live for new opportunities. Over the past eight years, the San Francisco area has added 676,000 jobs, but only 176,000 housing units. So a few years ago, the city council voted to change the zoning of one section of the city right here. Specifically, this two-acre plot of land. They wanted to change it from low-density housing to higher-density housing so that they could build a 60-unit affordable housing complex for elderly members of the community. Okay, so they changed the zoning. Start building the 60-unit complex. No, the overwhelmingly liberal residents of Palo Alto decided to hold a vote to overturn the decision to revert it back to low-density single-family housing. Back to yellow. And it passed, and the zoning was overturned. So now when you go to this plot of land, instead of an affordable housing complex for the elderly, what you're gonna see is this. A row of just a few houses, all of them massive, and worth around $5 million each. I think people aren't living their values. You go to these meetings in these neighborhoods where they're talking about a new housing project, and it's always the same song, and it goes like this. I am very in favor of affordable housing. We need more of it in this community. However, I have some concerns about this project. We have the hearts to do this, but we're doing it wrong, and we're dictating 
and harm onto the neighborhoods. And then off we go with the concerns and then nothing ever gets built. This is happening all over California. And the result is that these neighborhoods are so expensive that they keep anyone out who isn't a part of this small group of super rich residents, many of whom bought their properties decades ago and who spend their time fighting vigorously to keep the value of their real estate assets super high. If you want to keep Palo Alto the kind of neighborhood and community that we all treasure, low intensity, low density, safe for kids to walk to school, you've got to vote against Measure D. There's a, an aspect of sort of, of greed here and, and of uh, you know, nervousness about actually sharing those opportunities. Let's go to another liberal bastion up here in Washington state. The Democratic Party talks about taxation, saying that our tax code has been, quote, rigged against the American people. Democrats all the time are decrying the fact that tax cuts are going to the wealthiest Americans. It is time for a wealth tax in America. Democrats believe in a progressive tax system where the rich pay a larger share of their income than the poor. This is like the most basic policy vision of like a progressive movement. It's front and center in Democrats' policy platform. But if you go and look at Washington state, what you find is that in Washington state, if you look at the, the state and local taxes that people pay there, less affluent families pay a much larger share of their income in taxes than the wealthiest residents of Washington state. So people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, two of the state's most famous and wealthy residents, are in this lovely situation of, of paying less in taxes as a share of their income than, than the poor people who live in that same state. And this is a fundamental inversion of the values that the Democratic Party professes. There is no state with a more regressive system of taxation than Washington state. And I'm talking like the most regressive, meaning Texas, which is like the conservative bastion of like anti-taxes, is more progressive than Washington state, liberal Washington state. How is that real? Oh, and guess what? Other states on our map also are in the top 10 of most regressive tax regimes like Nevada and Illinois. There have been some changes, particularly in recent years, but the overall situation remains resistant to change. So I am very concerned that at this time, which is a very poor time to disincent people from creating jobs in Washington state, that we're even considering it. From that paycheck that you earn, more of that money is going to state government. And so the effect of that is basically to exacerbate inequality. Okay, so rich liberals don't show up when it comes to housing or taxes. Another major theme in this policy document is education. And the wording in here I find quite interesting. The Democrats say, quote, we must provide world-class education in every zip code to every child because education is a critical public good. They use this word zip code to represent the fact that in America, schools get their funding based on the real estate taxes of the houses within that school district. The more expensive the neighborhood, the more funding goes to the school. So over here in Illinois, which is like the quintessential liberal state, there's this one county that contains the city of Chicago. It's called Cook County. The residents here voted overwhelmingly for Democratic candidates in the presidential and senatorial elections last year. 
Often what would happen is that this would just be one big school district and that all the taxes from all the towns in this county would be put into one bucket and distributed equally throughout the county. But the residents of this very blue democratic county have actually decided to divide themselves into more than 140 school districts. So now you have all these tiny school districts like this one, which are like gerrymandered around the richest part of town. And so all of the taxes from these rich homeowners go into one little bucket and then only get distributed to the schools within this rich region of the county. I'm sorry we don't have time for um, talk back today. But one thing we do want to mention is that a week from uh, a week from Sunday, I'll be doing a special webinar on overcoming loneliness, depression, anxiety, insecurity, uncertainty, and fear. All that. It'll be a live lecture, and right now I'm also hoping to throw in a film, and I'll be taking calls from people in the audience. Go to GaryNall.com, and you'll see this and sign up for it. just want to mention that I have something, a, a new premium for now to give you. I bought up the entire inventory from my publisher, got the rights back, and it's to the Healing Foods Cookbook. This is a wonderful cookbook. It has some of the most interesting, exciting, tasty dishes I've ever created. And uh, there's lots of it in there. Also, uh, there are protocols in the back as well. I think you'll find it interesting. Coming with this cookbook is The Art of health, Healthy Cooking. This is the documentary I did on America's Greatest Living Chef, David Boulay. And we went to the farmer's market, and you see how a master gourmet chef selects the herbs and, and the vegetables, and you'll see him picking something and rolling in his hands and then smelling it, looking at it, because that's what he did every morning to take back to his Boulay restaurant. And... Uh, in fact, um, he starts with just the idea, I want to do something different. And you'll see this, a whole documentary just on how this person creates. And boy, you're going to be so inspired, you're going to have all these ideas. So the cookbook, this is not the same as the arthritis cookbook. This is not the same as the Curing the Incurable cookbook. You're going to enjoy these recipes. Now, the normal price would be $67.98. All right, here's your lucky day. Today, both items are only $29.95. That's saving $38, so you're saving about almost 60%. So you're getting the Healing Foods Cookbook, Healing Foods Cookbook, at least while I have them in stock, and the Art of Healthy Cooking documentary. Together, call this number. 877-627-5065, 877-627-5065, and just keep adding wonderful, gourmet, healthy, vegan, gluten-free dishes to your diet. This makes it easy to get healthy, all right? So I thought this would be a great special, and I've been negotiating for years to buy back my inventory, and I got it. So... Now, I can send it right out, same day. Again, you're only paying $29.95 for all this information, for the cookbook, beautiful pictures, the recipes, information that can help you, and David Boulay, uh, a very personal, intimate 
look into his life and his mastery in the kitchen. And we take you in the kitchen. We spent a whole day, took all day, for him to show us from beginning to end how he does dishes. You're going to learn from the best. All right, call 877-627-5065. Or if you want to order from Neil in our vitamin closet, Monday, or excuse me, Monday, to, yeah, Monday to Saturday from noon to 8, call 646-926-5430. Have a nice day. I used to 